So I missed at least one blank. Um, so I'll, I'll start with blanks. Missed blanks. Um, which, which blanks do you guys need? Oh, Lee was downstairs. She needs them all. First one was all. All. Any others? The last one is founded. Having been rooted in love. Oh, the last one, the third, number four, third petition. Filled. Filled. Oh, those are already filled in? Okay, got it. Rooted and founded. Grounded? No. Sorry. It's founded. It's foundationed, really. There's no English word foundationed, but it's founded. Um, it's, the same, it's the same word used when Jesus tells the story about the man who built this house on the rock. When the storm came, it stood because it had been founded on a rock. It's be, to be built upon, to be grounded. or. <laughs> I see. I see. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> Foundedly. Foundation. It's been built. Okay. Got it. Um, other. Okay. Yes, Matthew. Point C under number two. Point C. Dwell. 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 Um, so let me, I'm going to start by sort of, um, I don't like, I, I feel uncomfortable, and I want to double check my math, triple check my math, if and when I'm disagreeing with the English translations you guys may be using, because I, A, those people who translate it know what they're doing, and B, um, I, I think I don't want to undermine a confidence in the Bible. This is really just more of an issue of structure. Paul's got a long sentence when you've got a long sentence, you've got to figure out ways to break it up into clauses and organize it. And I'm just uh, disagreeing with some of the decisions that are made. If you have a copy of Young's literal translation, it's pretty much, I'm going where he's going with it. King James is actually going the same. What? No? You're scowling? No? Okay. Um, so, here's, here's, let me give you the macro outline. You've got a petition that comes in three um, requests. But all set up by clauses that. You get the first one in verse um, 16, and it's that he might give. The second one is in verse 18. And here's, again, where it's difficult, because how do you translate this into English? Um, it's, no, no, the second one's not in 18. The second one is in, um, no, it's in 18. That you might be strengthened. No, you can do it in English. That you might be strengthened. And the third one is in 19, that you may be filled. And then those verbs, there's a, there's a mood of verb called subjunctive. It's, it's possibility. This might happen. I'm asking that God might do this. Uh, and then he uses some uh, infinitives, to, you know, to be or not to be. Those are infinitives uh, to describe it. So structurally, it lines up pretty neatly in, in Greek, translating it. And then it's just a matter of trying to find smoother English. So I'll give you an example, one that's difficult. One of the infinitives, verse um, 17, the ESV is, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Literally, it's just Christ to dwell. <laughs> that just isn't good English. So, so what you really get is lining up. is I want God to give you to be strengthened, you to Christ to dwell in you. <laughs> Christ to dwell in you. 
That, that's what he wants him to give, those two things. Christ to dwell and the spirit to strengthen you. It's, and so then we try to smooth it out into better English. Um, but that's why I'm taking the spirit empowering or strengthening you to be the same. Okay, I know I use some grammar terms. At least I didn't use um, hendiades, which is what I think is going on here. Um, hendiades is using two words or two figures of speech to name the same thing. Hen, Greek, one, dia, through, two. One through two. So an example of hendiades is um, the New Testament formula, repent and believe. Speaking of one act, which is why some places the call to salvation can simply be repent, like in Acts 2, Peter, and why it can just be believe. Because you're speaking of when you're turning to something, you're turning from something. And so you can call it repent and believe. Like take, pick up your hat and go is not really calling some of the two, one, two things as much as it's get going, you know? Um, and so in that type of thing, you're speaking the same thing two ways here. I think he's doing the similar thing. He wants the spirit to strengthen them to their inner man. And he wants Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith. And I think those are two of the same things. Um, and in Colossians, it's also the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. I mean, it's both are looking at the same thing. So it's not a progression. Otherwise you, with the ESV, you might get the idea First, the Spirit's got to strengthen you with power. Then, once that's happened, Christ can take up fuller residence. I don't think that's what's going on. I think he's describing the same thing two ways. The Spirit strengthening the power is Christ taking up more and more residence in your heart through faith. Um, does that make any sense? Okay. Questions on this from this morning? Oh, Elsa. Um, I've, uh, have you seen the Tyndale Greek New Testament that's out, the latest one apparently? Is that the translation that uh, Peter Williams is the editor of? Well, he works at Tyndale House. Yes, I think, I think. yeah, I've got a copy of that. Yeah, yeah, because James White has a couple of things on the Bible and the authenticity of Scripture and the whole, um, his latest podcast. And he was saying um, that, what they're doing with the Tyndale House, they're only looking at manuscripts that are within 500 years of the where the originals would have been written. And that has even changed the order of the books in the Bible now because of them doing that. Because, I mean, the order of the books aren't inspired, right? Right. Now, the order of the books, actually, um, we actually get part of that cue coming out of Galatians. The original church ordered them, um, I have a professor, called them the pillar apostles. Remember when Paul went to um, Jerusalem, he met with the so-called pillars, Peter, James, and John? Early church's organization, the epistles by Peter, James, and John are at the front. Okay. Then what we did is we put it in, the organization of the New Testament, there's no... no, uh, Divine. Divine or even... It's purely a useful organizational tool. There's no even spiritual reason. The four Gospels, the sequel to one of the Gospels, Paul's letters, longest to shortest, the letter Paul might have written, the general epistles, and and Revelation. Mm. That's the order. It's Mm. purely um, to help find your way around. It's not any sort of spiritual wisdom or insight. Mm. It's just, okay, let's uh, start with the four Gospels. Mm. Then we'll put the, the other historical book, Acts, 
Paul, longest to shortest. He might have wrote Hebrews, so throw that in. I don't think he did. And then the general epistles, shortest to longest. General, because Peter, James, and John are not identifying churches they're writing to. Paul is writing to specific churches, specific people. So they call them the general epistles because you get James, a bondservant of Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. It's a general address. Um, but no, the earliest church had those letters first. Um, yeah, he didn't say which books. It's not like it's all the books. I think it's just one or two changes that they're making. But I mean, that's in the Greek Bible, yeah. so it's not going to... I uh, just think that it's important to understand that, um, like you were preaching this morning, this is not necessarily like found, um, founded and grounded. I mean, that doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. It's no, no, just no. better. It's just improving better understanding, right, now that we know Right, well, it's, no it's, more. it's more the issue, I think, of um, the difference with these things. It's more the difference between deaf and high deaf. I don't know. What's not high deaf called? Regular deaf? Definition? Standard? It's the difference between standard and high deaf. It's rare, 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 rare that you go to the Greek or the Hebrew and all of a sudden, I thought it meant this and it means something totally other. What the Greek helps me do is figure out the structure. So when I'm, when I'm translating, the first thing I'm looking for is any clear signs of authorial structure. Are there any indicators that Paul's giving me of how he's breaking this up? So when we get to chapter four, you're gonna see five times he's gonna start a section off saying walk. And it's clear Paul is dividing his instructions up through these five walk commands. And then he goes to a household code where he speaks to wives, husbands, children, slaves, and masters. Clear organizational patterns. So I'm just looking, where's Paul's structure coming from? Because I want my teaching to, if I can, fall in line with his structure. So whereas in the English, the structure might give you 10 options of how to outline this. Translate it from Greek, I'm like, okay. The structure seems way more, the parallelism of the structure jumps out far more in Greek. So what I'm getting from Greek is far more how to organize the thought than any particular meaning of any magic phrase or word. Okay, here's the ordering. So that's, that's the distinction I'm getting is I, th- I feel pretty confident with this outlining of it and this arrangement of it, although it's not really changing content a whole lot. Um, it's not changing the meaning of things as much as... I suppose the only thing I'm saying that's different is the ESV is suggesting a progression um, that, that you be strengthened so that, with a result, that the result of the Spirit empowering you is Christ dwells in you. And I'm saying, I don't think it's the result. I think it's the same thing. So I, I guess that would be a, a difference of, of meaning. But different translations are going to take that different ways, too. If you want to study, my best advice in studying is to get two or three... Uh, accurate translations and compare them. And where they're all saying the same thing, you can be pretty confident that that is a really clear, precise translation. And when they start saying different things, that's usually a red flag that something complicated or tricky is going on here. For instance, and, and it's, it, no English translations can be able to do a justice because there are Greek phrases that we just don't use. So for instance, in um, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul speaks about if any man thinks he's behaving inappropriately, literally, to his virgin. That's just not an expression we use. And so I think the New American Standard says virgin daughter. They fill in virgin daughter. And the ESV, I believe, says betrothed. Both are trying to make sense of a figure of speech or a title we just don't use. 
right? Um, no one speaks about how's your virgin doing. That's just not the way we talk. Um, and yet that's what he's, something like that. So there's literal confusion. Is he talking about a virgin? We can think of two references that this might be speaking of. It could be speaking of a young daughter. It's almost certainly speaking of a young woman. Is it your young woman daughter in your home? Or is it the young woman you're engaged to? Your, your, your fiancé? And different translations go different ways with that. It's just not easy. Um, the word of God is not confused. I mean, it's just, how do you put that in English? And so, but with better translations, you usually have footnotes on the, the discussed issues. So I think in both the ESV and the New American Standard, whichever way they take with virgin, there'll be a footnote letting you know the opposite or the alternate as well. So read your footnotes, get two or three decent translations, read them in conjunction, and that'll usually solve a lot of problems. Um, okay, sorry. I know I'm talking a lot about grammar and other exciting things, but I get excited about grammar. You have no idea. Well, once you see the structure, you're like, oh, okay, that's pretty clear. Um, anyway, other, other, yes. So in and verse 14, you talked about Paul's demonstrating our access to the Father by mm-hmm. saying, I bow my knees unto the Father. If yes. King James goes further and says, the f- doesn't leave it as to the Father, but the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it takes, I don't know that it changes the argument that it's demonstrating our access because of the next line of saying how it's kind of in our lineage. Okay. But well, I'm looking at, no, keep talking, keep going. I, I just, when you stop at Father, that definitely shows our access because he is our Father. Okay. But King James says the he only points out it's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not necessarily now ours. that is an actual issue of textual variance. Yeah. Um, so the Greek... Okay, we'll talk a little about Greek manuscripts. Okay, so... Um, the church... Here's, here's a brief history of the Greek New Testament and your New Testament. Start, so the New Testament was written in Greek. But by about the 4th century the church began using nearly exclusively a Latin translation of the Greek New Testament called the Vulgate, translated by Jerome. Latin was the academic language, and so very shortly, the Greek New Testament stopped being used, and this Latin translation was used. So at the time of the the Reformation, because the Renaissance was all about rediscovering Greek roots and past, they were rediscovering Plato and rediscovering Aristotle, uh, a bunch of the humanists in the Catholic Church, Erasmus of Rotterdam not least, said, hey, why on earth are we reading a Latin translation when we could be reading the Greek New Testament? So Erasmus gets permission from the Pope to gather and assemble a Greek New Testament, which he can now print with a newly invented um, press. And so Erasmus gathers together a family of, of Greek manuscripts, but they're, they're not, there's not a ton of them. And they're pretty old. They're pretty, not old, they're pretty young. They're like, some of them are in like a thousand year AD, you know. And he gets approval. He, he, he takes it together. And we don't have a single Greek manuscript that we think a copy of a Greek manuscript. And we got about 25,000 partial and complete Greek manuscripts. We don't have a single Greek manuscript that we think itself is a perfect copy of what Paul wrote. And yet that doesn't trouble us. Let me give you an example. If, um, if 25,000 people tried to write down, uh, as I was speaking, a 20-minute sermon, it is completely 
plausible that not a single one of them would flawlessly do that. And yet, it's also not likely that they'd all make the same mistake in the same places. And so by comparing all 25,000 notes, we could reconstruct with great confidence a perfect copy of what I said. And so one of the uh, challenges or one of the things that needs to be done with when you're putting together Greek New Testament, what Tyndale House did, is you've got to where there are variations compare. Um, and so what you were saying is when Tyndale House just put out their Greek New Testament, they said, we're only going to look at manuscripts that are in the first five centuries after. Um, so Erasmus's Greek New Testament, which becomes known as the Textus Receptus, which is Latin for the received text, the papal approved text, is the first Greek New Testament put out, and it's the Greek text that the King James is based upon. It's the, it's the Greek text that all of those older translations are based off of. One of the positive consequences of the resurgence of Islam is a lot of the Orthodox, Coptic, and um, Western, Eastern Orthodox churches have been driven out of those lands with their really, really old Greek texts. And so in the last 100, 150 years, there's been an absolute explosion of Greek manuscripts available to us. And so we've got a much larger pool to draw from. Uh, someone could look this up, but I think Erasmus had less than like a 100 or 200 well, he had five or six families, but he had dozens of copies of them. Um, but uh, Erasmus is, so when we're dealing with 25,000, Erasmus, I think, had like a couple hundred. And, um, and so in the same notion of comparing things, if you only had 200 copies of what I said, you're going to be less confident in being able to accurately reproduce what I said than if you got 25,000. And so because of the proliferation of older and um, more broad Greek New Testaments, our ability to, uh, to reconstruct the Greek New Testament is become more precise. And one of the things we see is that as scribes are copying and, and translating, um, the, not cop, translating, they're copying the text, they're making notes about things. And scribes, we've learned, are far more likely to add than subtract. So as you go through rules of trying to figure out what the, what the reading is, generally, here, here are your rules general rules for how to, uh, how to decide on a particular reading. Shorter is to be preferred over longer because what scribes, t- what frequently will happen is, and this is an example, um, you'll, you'll have two copies. A scribe will have in front of him two copies. Um, the most common text variants are with titles to Jesus. Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus, something like that. And so a scribe will have one manuscript that says to our Lord Jesus Christ, and another one will say you know, to, to, our, to our Lord Jesus, the other one will say to Jesus Christ, and the scribe won't want to make the decision, so he'll put them together and make the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, or a scribe translating Luke will add in a phrase from Matthew in a similar passage. Well, I know it's supposed to be there, you know, so he puts it in. It's far, it's far more common for scribes to add than to subtract, in other words. So shorter readings are generally better than longer readings. Readings that are older are to be preferred over younger readings. Readings that are harder, scribes will far more likely to smooth out a difficulty than create one intentionally. So if something's awkward or difficult, so in other words, which one of these is going to be harder is probably a, an indicator. Um, Whatever has the widest geographic support. You may have 300 copies that all say Lord Jesus, but if they all come from Caesarea, the likelihood that they actually trace back to one manuscript that got copied 100 times is more likely than if you've got 100 copies that say Lord Jesus from all over the Mediterranean. 
So whichever one's got the broadest geographical support. But at the end of the day, the reading you go with is the one that can best explain the others. You've got to come up with a plausible explanation for how did you end up with these. Um, and so because of that, um, th- these are some of the difficult challenges that need to be made. Now, the good news with all of that, and that's, that's a long, um, winding explanation for how we get our Greek New Testament, is that most recently, given all the data we have, two different committees, I, I don't know about the, the Tyndale House, but I know that the Nestle-Alon 28th edition and the United Bible Society 4th edition, two separate committees looking at the same 25,000 texts came up with identical Greek New Testaments. That's pretty remarkable. Um, that's the level of accuracy we got. So the King James is a longer, the King James comes from the Textus Receptus, and the Textus Receptus is a larger document. It also tends to be a younger document. And so what we think is, and I've looked into this in a number of instances, it's the evidence of scribes adding things together. It's those added titles. Uh, it's, It's adding in things. This type of demon only comes out through prayer and fasting, you know, because... Luke said and fasting, so Matthew's got to say it too, that type of thing. Um, and so this is an example of that, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I, think, I, I think it's, it's far, more, I think it's pretty certain that, it's, that, that uh, Paul just wrote the father. Lee. Uh, Erasmus had six copies of the Greek manuscript and uh, from the 12th century or later. Okay, I thought he had hundreds. He had six. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. He had access to more. Yeah. Ooh, okay. We'll take the Trinity verse. The King James in... Where's Mitchell when I need him? First Timothy, no, first, first John 5, the Trinity verse. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. If uh, your, your ESV is actually missing a verse number, I think, in, in, in first John 5. Uh, the Pope twisted Erasmus's arm and made him include a verse that didn't occur in any of his texts because it was in the Latin. It's in first John. Let me go to first John 5. Where is it? These three agree. The Father, the Word. Yeah, if you anyone got the King James, want to read First First John five seven? Anyone got a King Jimmy? I can bring it up on my phone. Um, King James in First John five seven says this: There are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Um, the Church had fought over the Trinity. The Church had resolved the Trinity. The Latin Vulgate had that verse, and the Pope was dismayed when the Erasmus's first edition that he presented for approval didn't. And so Erasmus basically said, look, I haven't seen that in any document, in any Greek manuscript. If you can find me one that has it, I'll put it in. And uh, amazingly, they discovered a recent, by recent, I mean contemporary copy. <laughs> amazingly. <laughs> no, sir, that's what it, it seems as though you guys just had to scribe somewhere do that. And he put it in. And so even though it's doctrinally true, when you've got 25,000, then it occurs in one. Probably not. And I was just about to comment that I was amazed that the Pope allowed him to retranslate from the Greek, but now I think we're 
cleared up. Well, no, but it was, but because of the church's control of things, I mean, they're incredibly nervous about letting the common people read. That's why they outlawed the Bible in the vernacular. Uh, because if you're claiming a magisterial interpretive authority, we'll tell you what it means. Letting people read the instructions themselves is a dangerous activity. And so, yeah, Erasmus had to have his Greek New Testament approved. Um, and even then, Luther's able to do what Luther's doing because he can actually read now the Greek That's, and see what it says and be like, wait a second, they ain't, purgatory ain't in here. That's what um, I mean. That's the center of my question is it seems rather risky that they would let him do that. Right. Maybe they thought it was just an academic exercise. I don't know. They, they probably didn't realize the significant. I'm certain they didn't realize the implications of what they're. And there's also a sense where there's the Renaissance was kind of a big deal. <laughs> and there's a lot of Catholic scholars who are being impressed with the Renaissance, going back to the classics, reading Aristotle, reading Plato, reading those guys. And so it's hard to come up with a credible reason. Hey, if, if God inspired this in Greek, and if we're discovering and rediscovering Greek, and we're getting really good at translating Greek, why shouldn't we read it in Greek? Because we said not to? <laughs> I mean, it's... it's, it's uh, and, this is, and this is being raised not outside the church, but from within. I mean, see, Erasmus is a, is a rock star for the Catholics. When Luther started going off, they basically, Erasmus, refuted him. I mean, Erasmus tried to stay out of the, the Reformation issue, and he was sort of pushed into it by the Pope. Um, you are going to help us out here. And so he took Luther on on the issue of the will, um, and that's how he enters into it. So Erasmus is, is no small figurehead in Catholicism. Uh, so when, you're, when your leading scholars in your church are petitioning you to do it, it's kind of hard for them not to. But... Yeah, they, they, the genie got let out of the bottle there, and, and there was no putting him back in. Um, well, it's like even Luther's Reformation, um, was a re- it's not a big deal. What Luther did, banging the 95 Theses to the door, in and of itself, was nothing big. He was calling for an academic dispute that was going to be in Latin. It was the fact that his 95 Theses were translated into vernacular German and then printed as leaflets and handed out. That's what did it. Luther's activity of saying, hey, I'd like to debate these. I mean, basically what Luther said is, I'd like to debate someone on these topics. I'm inviting it. So somebody come forward and debate me on this. You know? um, you've seen that meme that's like, you know, I believe that, 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 that changed my mind. It's like that. That's, that's all he's doing. People got a hold of it, translated it to vernacular German, and then widely disseminated it. And then the people in, in the countryside at large like, wait a second, what? <laughs> and that's when things started igniting. Yeah, the Reformation would not have happened without the printing press, as far as we can tell. I mean, God's sovereign. God, the, the printing press was instrumental and critical in, in the way the, the Reformation carried out. It, it, we don't, it, looking at how it happened, it couldn't have happened 40, 50 years earlier. just couldn't have. Um, okay, we've gone far afield. Any other? Yes. Pat. Uh, with the history you gave us in mind, yeah. uh, I've always, I don't have a King James version with me, but... Mm. Um, I've always questioned uh, Romans 8, uh, 1, the, the second part of that verse in the King James. I think they borrowed a phrase out of the fourth verse. Was that uh, something that they picked up from the Texas Recepticus, or was it something that was um, simple, simply added in? Let's see, here's one. Let me one. check. Let me check. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, I believe, is borrowed from uh, the text in in verse 4. And I don't think there's any um, 
uh, reason for it from the Greek text, as I as I know it anyway. I'm not seeing anything in my. Hold on, let me check. Hold on here. Um, it's not um, big problem, but it is. No, no, it no, does no, weaken no. The, the strength of the statement in Romans eight one. Um, hold on. Yeah, there it is. Okay. If you actually the best if you want if you're interested in this, there's a resource called um, so. Okay, back up a hair. So a guy named Bruce Metzger was the head of a committee, a translation committee that put together the United Bible Society's um, Bible Greek New Testament. And not only did they publish their New Testament, they published another book explaining and justifying the various readings they took. And so Metzger's commentary on the Greek New Testament is a wonderful resource if you care about this. So I'm reading their entry on Romans 8.1. They will rank the certainty with which they have over their readings. They'll go anywhere from A to D. This is an A rating, which means they're very, very confident in it. And here's what they say. At the close of the verse, the later manuscripts introduce the interpolation from verse 4, which is to say they introduce the piece from verse 4 that you pointed, in two stages. Then he cites some of the texts that do it. Um, The shorter text, which makes the more general statement without the qualification, um, is strongly supported by early representatives of both the Alexandrian and the Western types. So what they're saying is from there's there's three big, big, broad schools of text, Alexandrian, Western, and, uh, oh, grief, what's the third one? What? Byzantine. Byzantine. Well, yeah, Byzantine. Yeah, Byzantine. And he's saying so from these two massive pools, it's strongly supported. The other thing we can check, we can, we can recreate almost the entire New Testament just from the citations of it by the church fathers in the first couple hundred years. So the other thing we start looking around is, what are they quoting? What's Origen quoting? What's Athanasius quoting? What's Augustine quoting? When they quote, if anyone quotes Romans 8.1, do they include that quote? It just doesn't show up in the first couple hundred years. So yeah, it, it's an example, yeah, of, of uh, yeah. Okay. I didn't, I didn't expect we'd go off on a big textual criticism, but fair enough. Um, and CBGM, the coherence-based genealogical method in Munster. I have no idea what you're talking about. They are busy. CBGM. CBGM. You can go and Google it. Coherence-based genealogical method. Okay. They're running all these manuscripts. They've got them mm-hmm. in computers, and they're yeah. doing detail. Comparisons, oh, yeah. so they are busy redoing the entire New Testament, right, right. like you were just explaining. The most manuscripts that have the same reading are most likely the correct ones. So that's what, and and you cannot compare all the manuscripts. Um, it's not humanly possible, so they're running it through these computers. Right, right. But it's not it's not as simple a matter of of majority though, because. What you'll find is some texts that are some texts that are later will show up to a a a, a place a city like um, Constantinople, and because of the scholarship present, it gets copied five hundred times. So all of a sudden, this one text there's now five hundred copies of it, and if you simply did it by majority, that would give it a ton of weight. But if that's all from the fifteenth century. I'd say one or two texts from the third probably is going to outweigh that. Right, 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 right. Okay. The, the, for those of you who, who aren't interested in actually getting into the nuts and bolts of text criticism, the, 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 the big takeaway from it is this. 
as more and more texts have come out, we are getting we are able to have a greater and greater degree of certainty. But even the differences between the 25,000 we have now and the dozen or so that Erasmus have is minuscule in its difference. I mean, and where it is, it's not affecting doctrine. It's taking a phrase from verse 4 and, oops, we put it back in verse 1. It's not, the text said go left, but now it says go right. And the majority of the differences are titles um, and places of like the is it articular or non-articular? Is it pray to Jesus? Or the, the Greeks would say the Jesus just as easily. Oh, this one says the Jesus. This one says Jesus. It, it's that type of differences. I can th- went through a, a couple classes in seminary going this, and I think there's only like four or five actually significant variations. There's the, the long ending of Mark with the handling of snakes. You guys probably know that one. Um, there's uh, the, the woman caught in adultery in John 7. There's, I mean, there's not many. There's the Trinity verse in First John. I'm trying to think. Like these are the big ones, and they're not even that huge. So, well, um, if you look at the Quran, that's the big difference between the Bible and the Quran. Is uh, when Muhammad died in 632 A.D., there was a big fight who was going to follow him up as the prophet and continue. And then there was Uth- fighting in Islam. No way. And then Uthman, Uthman is the guy, I think he was Muhammad's cousin. He realized that a a lot of the Quran was was, um, not written down. And all those people were dying that knew, that had uh, memorized it. So he had them all write it down. And then he took all those manuscripts and he created the Quran and he burnt everything. That's why the Quran is now almost like a Xerox copy. You will right. never find a variance or anything. But the problem is they don't know what's missing right. or what was misstated. And they say about the Bible, if you have all these manuscripts, if you were building a puzzle, a thousand-piece puzzle, you'd rather have 110,000 pieces than 95 pieces. Right then you can reconstruct it easier. I'd, I'd probably rather just have no puzzle, but yeah. No, but it's, you know. Sorry. Yes, no, I, I, got, yeah. I got you, I got you. My family likes to puzzle. I'm, I'm not so much, but, you know, um, that's all, sorry. No, absolutely right. It's, it's easy to have a monolithic text when you burn every other copy and say this is your copy and you can't. Technically, you're not supposed to translate the Quran. Um, you're not supposed to translate it. So, what? There you go, so don't. Uh, right, no, it's, 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 it's uh, yeah, it's easy to fake it. We'll just burn every other copy, and, yeah. But, right, right. Right, okay. So I want to, I want to actually bring us back to the text this morning. <laughs> after this long aside into textual criticism. Um, and I also want to make an announcement about the upcoming series. So those are my two things I want to do. Um, the first is, is just Paul's passion for the believers. We, we, we have such an emphasis. I was talking to I was Patty. She asked, why do you keep talking about Western individualism? Because there, in the West, individualism is huge. Um, and there's truths and good things to individualism. Like I said in the message, we are saved individually. Um, we're not saved by being born into a particular family. We're not saved by being part of a particular tribe or people group. We're not saved by our parents' faith 
where, where you have to believe it's an individual transaction. It takes place between you and God alone. There's no proxies. There's no representatives. There's no hand-holding. Either you are bowing the knee to Christ, trusting him, or you're not, period, full stop. You get saved. Groups don't get saved together. They get saved, and the individuals in a short period of time get saved. But there's no group salvation. There's individual salvation only. There's individual judgment only. When we stand before the beam of seat of the Lord, I'll be judged for what I've done. That's it, not what anyone else has done. Right? The soul that sins shall die. So judgment's individual, salvation's individual. Um, and in the West, we tend to be more individualistic. As opposed to cultures where your tribe or your family is a big deal. The, the best remnant I can think of is, um, and I know it's kind of a stereotype, it's like the Hatfield and McCoys. There's this sense of, if you're a Hatfield, that's part of your identity, and part of your, your loyalty is you're opposed to the McCoys. Well, there are certainly parts of the world more in the East now where your tribal identity and your familial identity, your family honor, these are big deals. Representing your family is a big deal. You, and you less view yourself as an individual and more as part of a group, part of a tribe, part of a family. Um, and so when we read the Bible as Westerners, those individual portions jump out at us and they're there. There's individual aspects, no doubt. The corporate, not so much. What, what, what was striking to me, well, I'll give you a head start of where we're going next week. In Ephesians, you'll see it clearly without any confusion in, in uh, verse uh, 18. Ephesians 3.18. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So this comprehension, this understanding, is a group activity. But have you ever stopped and thought to yourself, ever, I can't understand this on my own. I need to get together the church to understand this. That's what Paul's saying. I want you together with all the saints to understand. And that's just not the way we're hardwired to think. Why can't I just, me and my podcast in my car, driving to work, why can't I do that? I need other people to do this. Um, and, and so there are corporate realities in the body. If you jump forward to chapter 4, uh, you see that picture clearly. The church will not grow until every bit, every person is doing their part. Um, I love this. Verse uh, 15 and 16 of chapter 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. And you can't do this individually. You cannot do this by yourself. You and Jesus you know, rocking out to some worship music in your car from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. I mean, pause and think about that. Your Christian growth may well be hindered by someone else's inactivity. I mean, it's not American ways to think. In other words, everything could be going fine with you and your jointness and your partness, but it's somebody else, another joint, another part of the body's not, and then the whole body's not grown up. Uh, wait a second. No, no, it's a group project. This, what Paul is envisioning is a group project of growth. And it, he's, ex, he's explicit. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And what I mean is simply that I'm not, I don't, I'm not predisposed to think that way. So when Paul makes these sort of group requests, I need to sort of, now wait a second, <laughs> Slow down and remind myself. Because the whole thing he's coming out of at the end of two is, you guys need to get along. Where he's going into four is maintain the unity of the bond of peace. And so functioning as a body, there are things we need to do together and that we're not going to be able to do apart. 
and, and one of them here, the picture is Christ in each of your hearts. I didn't make this in the message, but he, he could speak of our corporate singular heart in chapter one. So he says, having the eyes of your heart, not hearts, enlightened. So he can pray for the eyes of the heart of the church at, at Ephesus. Here it's hearts, plural. So it's absolutely individual. It guards against another error. You can't say, well, Christ is dwelling in the church at Martinsville pretty well. Not me so much, but the whole church in general, he is, so we're fine. No, it's individual. Each and every one of you want Christ to be in your hearts more and more through faith. But that then sets up the next, only from that vantage point of that firm foundation, we'll be able to start to grasp the height, the width, the depth, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So... It's back to that each part doing its job properly so that the whole body grows. Christ, more and more by faith, dwelling, taking up residence in your heart through faith. He's no longer just got the guest room, but he's actually got the full run of the house. And he's taking down walls, and he's painting this wall. And he's, you know. I was, the problem with reading other people is you rip them off, and so then you are afraid of ripping them off. But D.A. Carson, talking about this, talks about how when he moved into a house with his wife, there are all sorts of projects. They found dog poop in a closet. They found gold and silver um, wallpaper in the bedroom. And it's like, then Jesus moves into our heart. And of course, we're the people of the gold and silver wallpaper. We're the people of the dog poop. We're the people of the strange smell and the bad plumbing. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done, right? Um, and so that's what he has in mind. But as that happens individually, we get in a position where we can better see the love of God in Christ. That's, that's where he's moving. So he, he, it is individual and it's corporate, and he moves back and forth. So even in chapter 4, look, look in chapter 4. Um, I shouldn't probably close my Bible. In 4, he makes all those ones. Verse 4, verse four one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's a massive statement of corporate unity. But grace was given to each one of us. Now we're back to individual. According to the measure of Christ's gift. So we are a corporate body made up of individuals. Um, and, and we need to be able to see the church both. And be able to move back and forth between both of those. So, um, because where he's going to next is you can't just sit back and say, well, the Lord's richly blessed our body with 10 or 12 really gifted people. They'll do the work of the ministry. Where he's moving into is actually the body's only going to grow and everybody, including you, is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> you know, you can't just be like, well, I'm not doing so hot, but the rest of the church is so we're good. I'll just ride on their coattails. Nope. Only when the whole body is working properly. Anyway, now the announcement for the series coming up um, uh, I'll make a more formal announcement when we get closer to it. But right now, as I tried to uh, map it out on the schedule, it's going to be five weeks long, and it's going to start February uh, 9th, the second Sunday in February. And I'll make this more publicly. We're going to cover um, abortion, gay marriage or homosexuality, and transgenderism. And with a message to kick it off and a message to close it, Daniel and I, I will not be speaking on those topics with any greater clarity than Scripture speaks. So it won't be, um, we won't be speaking in any sort of uh, explicit sense. Although the Scripture can get pretty focused. That said, it still makes perfect sense to me why younger children, you may not want to be here for one or two of them. I'm not sure I want my youngest kids to be aware of the fact that some mothers and fathers kill their kids. Like I, that's just a sad 
reality, right? Um, and so we'll try to give a heads up a week ahead or even that day of what we're talking about. So if, if it totally makes sense, totally understandable, um, even though the content won't be explicit, won't be, you know, there won't be any slides or anything up on the overhead or anything. Um, Okay, junior church goes through first grade. So if you have any questions with that, you can let me know. But that's the sort of announcement I wanted to make, just what we're going with that. Um, I'm going to get some more copies of Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, which is a really helpful resource on this topic. Um, and uh, we'll be working on the title, because the best we've come up with so far is Creaturely Identity and Cultural Insanity. But I'm sure it can be improved upon. Well, no, what's, what's difficult is, um, as, as, as we've tried to frame it, we're going to try to answer, there seems to be a common thread in the justifications for all three of those practices. And the answer to those justifications comes out of our identity as creatures. Because we're creatures, we're physical, and the physical body is to be honored. Because, like, I'll give you an example. Uh, the, the most bleeding-edge, pardon, it's not even a pun, um, the most bleeding-edge arguments pro-abortion recognize the baby's human and living. We, we know it is. The argument is personhood theory. It's not a person. It's not mentally developed enough. That's also the same argument for euthanasia. And so the notion is the physical, what, what physically is present is not, doesn't matter. What matters is identity and, and personhood. And so what you've got is this elevation of person, which is it's odd because it's, if, that's, if that's not a spiritual category, I don't know what it is. This, notion, this elevation of personhood is what's raised, and what's physical is completely unimportant. You can, it's, just, it's just a, it's a fetus, right? And so, like, no, your body is you. You are a flesh-spirit being. The body is not the fullness of you. The body is you. So even if, and I don't grant, but even if we grant there's not a developed person there yet, even if you did, and I don't grant that, but if we did, that body is still that child, and that body still bears God's image. We, so we, the response is God be like, no, we're, we're creatures, and we're physical creatures. That's the same argument for why if I identify one way, cut things off my body, sew things, my body is viewed as a sort of malleable, plastic morphing thing that falls in line with what I think. It's, it's, my body's unimportant. My body, how I, how I came into this world is of little consequence. My body can exist to please me and, and I can shape it however I please. Or to use the imagery of scripture, I can take this clay pot and remold it any way I want. I'm like, no, no, your body is you. Your mind is you and your spirit's you, but your body's you too. Um, so, that, so, so the answer to, to a lot of these issues is... In your creature identity as a physical being, and by virtue of being creature, there's a God that you have to answer to. And pots don't get to say to molders, why have you made me this way? So identity as creatures is, is crucial for answering this, but titling a series, We Are Creatures or something, you know, um, doesn't in any way suggest what topics we're dealing with. <laughs> right? So creature identity, cultural insanity is an attempt to try to Here's where we're coming from, and here's where we're going to. But it's clunky. I, I fully acknowledge it. But it's better than the LGBT plus series, which is what I've been casually calling it to myself for the last three months. So it's, it's better than that. Um, anyway, you can, if you've got any insights or thoughts, let me know. Godspeed. God bless. Good day.